Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Invasion or space solidarity versus fungal fascism with John Levitt. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Horror Vanguard. I am one of your co-ghosts. I'm Ash, joined as always by John. How's it going, John? I am pretty good. Pretty good. I am as good as it gets at the moment, right? I mean, that is, that is per good as acceptable right now. That is, that's better than bad. And, you know, ever since, ever since we did that episode on the McPherson tape and, and alien abductions and UFOs, I've been noticing a lot of strange signals interfering with our broadcast wavelength. Mm. And I think, I think right now we're, we're picking up an extraterrestrial life form. I mean, I've, I've heard the same thing. I've heard, and we don't know anything about this life form either. No, no. I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb here though and assume that if we're the first point of contact, it has chosen the name of John. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've tried to replicate your forms to better understand you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the show, uh John Levitt. How's it going? It's um it's pretty good. I uh I as good as good as it gets. Um I I had the thought today uh this morning that okay i'll get out of bed and make coffee when i hear the next ambulance siren <laughs> oh yeah okay so that that's a fun detail for future historians <laughs> assuming they exist um assuming there are still people to listen to podcasts um who else can well, how many relate? times has history ended now we're, we're at like three four well, what's well, the line? It's the end of the world when your people lose. So I'm sure, like whatever, like <laughs> vampire, I am legend people inherit the earth after this. They'll be <laughs> oh, they're gonna be stoked. It's gonna be such a good day for them. <laughs> and honestly, honestly, go them. They've spent so long living in subterranean caves at the center of the earth. Like, yeah, I mean, their days. Yeah, yeah they deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> but we just, we just couldn't leave it alone. We, we couldn't just not have you back. Yes, and I'm I'm so glad to be talking about one of the seminal horror franchises in uh, American cinema and an overlooked gem that is now uh, way, way more prescient now that people are like deliberately not wearing masks in order to infect other people by coughing. Um, uh, yes, yeah. I, I am really shocked at how this movie feels like just walking to the grocery store right now. Like this, there are aspects of this that are way too real. Yeah, like we're all like trying to avoid other people and like running dimly through disused areas and all of our trips to the supermarket now just feel like horrifying nightmares. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, what are we so what are we talking about? What are we talking about today, John? We are talking about 2007's The Invasion, an adaptation of Invasion of the Body Snatchers directed by I had his name, but I just lost it. But it's the German guy who directed Downfall, and that colors my reading of the film a lot and my uh, interpretation. Yeah, yeah as same. it should. <laughs> uh, that, would be, that would be Oliver Hirschbergel. Yes, yes. Um, but it was also apparently extensively um, rewritten by the Wachowskis at the last minute, which also factors into my reading of it. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I would I would die to know I like I would I would absolutely love to see the script before 
the um, Wachowski sisters got to this and then the script after. Like, that would just make my millennium. If, if um, I had to bet, I would probably guess it was the ending. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there are parts in the ending, and then there are parts when she's kind of... Um, Nicole Kidman is alone with her son that they feel they feel very matrix like like in that opening sequence too where she's got people locked up um in this convenience store and she's trying to find medicine to stay awake like you get you get like a lot of matrixy vibes mm. or at least i do but this this could be like i'm reading it into this film because i know that there was involvement but i don't know where it was and it drives me kind of mad <laughs> so before we before we dive into the analysis um I'm very excited for this uh, part of today's episode, Ash. Um, so for people who have not seen 2007's uh, The Invasion, starring Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig, who we will get to in <laughs> due course, uh, would you mind giving, as usual, your incredibly factual recitation of the plot? What is this film all about? Uh, I am proud to bring you back to the state of Wisconsin with this John Finney classic. It is only natural that we situate our conversation in the great city on a great lake. Sired from the Brewer's East-laden plains of Wisconsin came both Joseph McCarthy and Jack Finney. Both wound up through the course of their lives directing the American response to communism. McCarthy, of course, reaped the whirlwind that was sown amidst the post-World War II Red Scare, while Finney penned possibly the most notable novel on the exploration of the American fear of communism. Today's film, 2007's Invasion, is the fourth attempt to adapt Finney's novel into a motion picture. Like all adaptations before it, it chooses to paint a darker ending. In the novel, the alien pods realize that humanity is too intractably weird to conquer and flee for space. In that ending, a small ray of hope that perhaps we can fight for and win a better world. The human will is, as Finney sought to demonstrate, our most unbreakable trait. This is where we arrive at the invasive, rhizomatic, and fungal threads of discourse. The conversation around all of these texts locks itself into a dichotomy. They are either cautionary tales about the advance of communism or demonstrations of the horrors of anti-communism. We can do better. We can go deeper. This movie is these things and so much more. Colonialism, alienation, our response to the environment, and even fascism take place in these celluloid confines. Reach out. Take my hand. Connect with me through my mycelial bonds built of shared ideas as we discuss Invasion. Oh, so good. <laughs> uh, he, you always manage to, to, to top yourself week on week, and I think it's genuinely quite impressive. Uh, all right, where should we, where should we begin? Where should, where should we begin before we you know, get too far into the details here? Well, shall we start at you know, explaining the plot of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers? <laughs> I think that would wait, be a great place to start, John. I think that would be a great place to start. Oh uh, yeah, so so a brief a brief rundown of the actual plot of, of this movie. Um, Nicole Kidman plays our lead character. She is a uh, psychiatrist and a doctor. The a space shuttle crashes over the United States. The space shuttle is carrying a fungal parasite from outer space that takes over uh, the brains of the infected and turns them into emotionless copies of their former selves, a la The Body Snatchers, the Jack Finney classic novel. Throughout the course of the movie, um, our protagonist is wound deeper and deeper and deeper into a world that is under the control of these parasitic clones. 
until we do we reach our final climax where she is uh, rescued and flown off to an enclave of surviving humans where a cure is being developed. Uh, the film ends with a little denouement one year after the infection and the world is back to its normal, violent uh, nightmare of endless war. Back to normal! <laughs> <laughs> um, before, we, before, we, before we get into like specific moments, uh, John, maybe you could kind of contextualize the cinematic adaptations of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and how this one differs from and builds on previous versions. Right, well, the... Um... The first adaptation, the 1950s classic, uh, is hems like pretty as much as one can to the source material. It's pretty slow moving, even for a horror movie of its period. But it is all about paranoia. But it is sort of a a vague paranoia. It's something is hostile out there, and it's trying to get in and fundamentally change you. There was like there's a very obvious uh, anti-communist read because. Space aliens in most 1950s movies stand in for communism. But there's also, I believe the lead actor at the time said he thought it was anti-Madison Avenue and anti-conformity. So the fact that it's so vague, it can interpret like those two readings. The 1970s a Sutherland adaptation takes a more of a post-Manson era, like maybe there's something wrong with the counterculture vibe. And that, like something is sneaking into the cities, like through this like eco horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I unfortunately haven't seen the 1994 adaptation, so someone else run with that. But I know that's that has a lot of defenders. Uh, and then we get to this one, and then we get to this one, um... which is about waking up one day and finding out all of your friends are actually fascists. <laughs> <laughs> So, so maybe maybe we can start there. Uh, you happened to have written a wonderful piece on Vice about this very film we're talking about today. So maybe maybe we can start with that. Link will be in the show notes, obviously. Sure. There's um, a particular passage. And also, you could very much argue that in this movie, they're not clones. They have like they have a fungal infection that's causing them to act this way. And it's kind of implied that they're like having some sort of hive mind thing going on. It's very corticeps, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, as Ash mentioned, like one of the arguments, like the spore people, the spore infected humans say is that, look, we can work together. You can't. We can end all war and disease. You just have to give something up. The invasion, however, is more direct. It is a movie about fascism, political dogma, and what happens when you realize your friends and fellow citizens are fascist collaborators from outer space. The invasion addresses how these elements are quickly and forcefully weaved into society, establishing themselves as the only logical recourse. The body snatchers of the invasion are still the original friends and family you knew before they turned. They're not clones or pod people. They just want to make humanity great again. Mm. Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a really good reading into this film. And I do, like, I do like that about this version of the kind of invasion of the body snatchers text. Yeah, this idea that that, that kind of fascism uh, it doesn't doesn't replace. It. I I really like the idea that, that the, these are not uh, pod people or clones or replacements because fascism doesn't replace you. You know your your will and individuality gets sublimated to the political project of of the state or in this in this case the the invading hive mind that wants to you know build a better shining world on the ruins and ashes of the old one 
<laughs> right. And um, in addition to it like being made by an anti-fascist filmmaker, there's also like uh, the visual cues, like when they're running through the through the DC subway, which, by the way, always looks a little fascist because it was built mm -hmm. by one hand and yeah. one design. Like things are lit up like an alien torch rally. <laughs> and like, you know, there are all these like perfectly like essentially like fascist rallies, but everyone's really placid and calm. And the way they detect other non-infected people is by deliberately killing people and seeing who reacts. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is jet like it's really horrible because there's the moment on the train when um nicole kidman's character is told don't react don't sh they'll know they'll know that you're not one of them if you if you show kind of empathy or that's well it's it's like the idea that if you if you show any empathy or concern for the people who are being like killed by the state or the organization that picks you as a problem that needs to be dealt with. Mm. It's really unsettling too, how quickly in how normally society continues to function. I, I think that's another aspect of kind of how this film represents fascism and very successfully, you know, like, like I think the, the airport sequence for me, like, like that, that whole series of scenes is just kind of really unsettling. You know, because like the planes are still flying, the airport still works, you know, people still have baggage. Everything is is relatively normal outside of like this staunch attempt to enforce, uh, you know, becoming a pod person. Yeah, I, I said, it's what I think makes it really effective. And also one of the reasons I think it's kind of hard to watch because like it's an absolute panic attack of a movie. Like you were feeling invaded on all sides by like just like the sound design. I, I mentioned this in the review. Like there are dogs menacing small children like at the 20 minute mark. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really jangly and it's counterposed with these scenes of like, well, normal everyday life. And in fact, I think things are better now because people aren't fighting all the time. Yeah. I think one of the things that the this franchise or these adaptations have always done really well is escalation um when oh you know someone's collapsed on the other side of the street that's weird or like you know a cop car goes screaming past and and somebody protesting is like bundled into it and you go, oh oh that's strange but i've got to get to work and the world carries on turning and then by the time you actually realize uh the scale of the problem it's in a way it's it's already too late yeah, I, I mentioned in the review, the first adaptation, movie adaptation ends with the main character running into the street shouting, they're already here, you're next, you're mm -hmm. next. And this movie sort of takes place after that's happened. Like mm -hmm. the invasion has yeah. already happened and you lost and you didn't even realize it. And mm -hmm. a lot of those scenes, especially in the middle part of this movie, of like, hmm, that's weird. Oh, well, better go back to work, have uh, become very literal in the last couple of weeks. Yep. <laughs> I, I've definitely like walked past like a food, uh, essentially a bread line and going, that's weird. I didn't know we were doing that. <laughs> but um, you want to talk about how like this movie interacts not only with fascism, but also with like the news media? Uh, yes, yeah, that definitely. There's this really, I I'm sort of fascinated by the recur because one of the things this film does is it shows lots of clips from the news media, uh, from CNN, from MSNBC, 
uh, and you get reports of what is happening elsewhere in the world. And so it opens with, oh, kind of normal, what seems to be like normal, familiar sounding crises and violence in, in various parts of the world that are victims of American imperialism, mostly. Um, hmm, how could that have been a cause? We don't know. Um, and then you get these recurring new segments where it's like, oh, these peace treaties have been signed. And so you get the you get to see not only the the struggle to the kind of practical on the ground struggle of resistance, but the way in which wide scale media infrastructure will always seek to normalize and uh, excuse emergent fascism, which is exactly what we've seen happen. Yeah, you might even say news of the peace talks have gone viral. <laughs> no, but it also reminds me of like Pontypool, the idea of this like communicable, infectious information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't sleep on that take. I think you're onto something good there. Hmm. Well, the the uh, film critic Jason Charwan had a really good take because I mentioned I was talking about this last night. He said, "Oh, I always I really love the Body Snatcher films because they're all about like communicable." cellular re replication and the films are themselves replicas mm -hmm. oh yeah 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 and in each each replica too like like you know it's it's the xeroxing problem each replica is it, it's not a copy of the original it's a copy of the copies yeah but it's also sort of evolutionary because it has to conform and fit into a new, a mm, new niche yeah. for a new society so whereas in one adaptation we get like this vague unspoken paranoia about an other there's a reason the 50s were called the era of the crack up whereas in 2007 it's sort of this weird feeling that fascism may be on the horizon mm. i find that actually that was one of my favorite things about this movie the, this adaptation um i really don't know why it's panned so heavily um but, but maybe it's because things have changed a lot in the intervening like uh i don't know decade but um, one of the things that I really, really, really enjoyed was that, um, you know, like this is this is six years after 9-11. This, this is still in, in the depths of post 9-11 American, you know, psychological landscape. And we don't really get, you know, we, we have we have the initial like space shuttle disaster, but that doesn't like it doesn't like collide into downtown New York and leave a massive smoldering crater. It doesn't like, you know, blow up the Statue of Liberty on the way. The aliens never you know, we, ne we never we never see that classic post 9-11 shot in American cinema where it's some some city skyline and the entire thing is smoldering and burning down. I, I found it really interesting that this movie uh, and then like people like we have the airport scene, too, and like people kind of just freely pass through an airport. And it's interesting to me that like this is a post 9-11 text that seems to be defying a lot of the hallmarks of, of post 9-11 American sci-fi and action. Especially, especially if you compare this with a film that came out just two years earlier, which is Spielberg's adaptation of War of the Worlds. Another, I was thinking that, yeah. You know, and that leans really heavily into the kind of post 9-11 cultural and psychological trauma. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's got something to do with who actually was making these films. And you, you hear you've got like an outsider's perspective on, on the US cultural experience. Oh, absolutely. And I, I was just about to say, it's like the scenes of Kidman's character, Carol, like having to navigate like who is a pod person and who isn't mm -hmm. and like adjusting to this new normal. Not going to lie. It reminded me of me going like, wait, why are you suddenly in support of war? Weren't you a leftist five minutes ago? Yeah, yeah. 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 And like you're having like these unthinkable thoughts. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that ties into the news media as well, because if you remember, like the news media just like just started spouting verifiable lies about what was going on and nobody cared. Yeah. And 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 how do you how do you do that when uh, institutionally, societally, the news media have placed themselves in that position where they are the arbiters of what is verifiable and what isn't, you know? Wait, you mean as a Brit, you might have some experience with a national news media that decides what's true and what's not? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh, dear. Who, who could have possibly have foreseen... Uh, a, a national broadcaster in particular showing some sort of partisan bias. <laughs> oh, we live in hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not even any of the fun hells, too. It's always we, we're, we're stuck with the most disappointing possible version. Yeah, it's die for Applebee's. Come on, at least can't we die for like the war god? <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> You know, where, where, where is our, like, mech president leading us to a glorious doom? I always thought we'd get the cyberpunk dystopia. I just thought we'd have cooler clothes. We, no, we got the, we got the boring dystopia. I, I had my money on reptiles from the center of the earth. I had my money on secret cabal of cultists bringing about the demon god, but, like... Well, let's cross our fingers. I, I mean, I guess, I guess the jury's still out on those. <laughs> I think one of the things that I found really resonant about this film, and it picks up on what you were saying about fascism, which is the scene at the embassy where we basically get the philosophical thesis of the film literally explained in dialogue. Um, and you get so, there is so much, so many of the characters just lapse into outright apologia where they go, yeah, yeah, maybe humans are just ontologically bad. <laughs> wouldn't it be great wouldn't it be great mm -hmm. if if something stopped them from from just being inherently evil um and uh, to to bang the bang to bang the drum that i always find myself repeatedly banging uh is that this is what a lack of historical materialism gets you this is what an absence of any kind of marxist analysis of material conditions gets you you end mm -hmm. up getting people who will just go uh, yeah, humans humans are bad for, and the solution <laughs> is to get rid of some of them. And they're bad for literally; they're just inherently bad, and we should get rid of them, or we should we should we should, you know, put alien spores in their mind to make them into something better. Like, so I I love that this film actually just stops and we get this whole scene. Uh, I don't know why they're they're at an embassy. I think but whatever, but they just have this conversation uh, where they go, yep, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we could just basically rewire human nature, which well, is precisely the fascist aim. That is, that is the fascist aim, but also I think the reason they're at the embassy is, um, I don't know, is there some sort of historical system in which we perceive other people as flawed and weaker and we must go to their country and make things better for them? Mm. <laughs> that certainly has no historical precedent. <laughs> No, it doesn't um, sound familiar, especially not not in America. I mean, <laughs> oh, come no, no, America, no, no. We're we're a shining city on a hill. We 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 found that hill completely unattended when we got there. In fact, the the, the fact that it was unattended means God put it there for us. I mean, come on, yeah, bingo, bingo. We we. I mean, like, so I think like this is something that I said in the intro. There's a lot of like in all of the body snatcher texts, and one of the things that I, I think isn't as discussed as it needs to be is is the fact that all these texts 
really and strongly deal with kind of the horrors of not only colonialism, but reverse coloni- colonization. How would you like it if it happened to you, bud? Yeah, this, this is kind of a successor to that aspect of Dracula, right? One of the big parts of, of Bram Stoker's novel is that there's this fear that the British people could be invaded by the people that they've subjugated. That this, mm-hmm. that this alien other could, you know, like the horrors that they've put upon the world can come home to roost. And the Body Snatchers is very much an American interpretation of that. What if they're all emotionless because they're just space wasps? <laughs> <laughs> the empire of Buffy and Miffy. I mean, it is canonically true that that once you're infected by any type of pod and or body snatching in the, in the Finney tradition, you do not fuck. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 not at all. Um, but um, to go back to something that John was saying, like I think that you know this this is another aspect of this particular adaptation that I really found interesting, and that's like this text kind of winds up being like adjacent to eco fascism, you know. Even our our final moment of dialogue, um, you know, is is, is reporters asking uh, questions to this government official, and the final the final scene and the final question is, oh, is the plague over? You know, or the plague. Wow, the, is 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 COVID nineteen over? And then the, the politician turns to the camera and he's like, or "Look at the news. We're back to war and evil shit. We're human again." And, and like the whole thing has this heavy implication that humans are irredeemable. Humans are bad. Humans destroy the world. And and this is kind of like the logical pretext to eco fascism. Yeah, yeah. Which another thing that's bizarrely relevant right now. <laughs> just a little bit yeah you know like uh uh john I, I think you're absolutely right like this movie is due for a revival yeah a hundred percent yeah even more so now i was i was wrote that in 2017 when i was just like oh it seems like the world is going mad but like one of the ways the pod people infect other people is literally by coughing or sneezing on them or spitting in yeah. their drinks and i'm just like okay like Three years ago, that was an interesting, like, literalizing of the word invasion because, like, it's invading personal space and personal body. But now it's just that's mm-hmm. just happening now. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I watched this at the end of last week. Um, and that was it was almost it was within I think it was I either watched this on the same day as or um, just immediately after uh, the news here in the UK that a. Um, a railway worker called Belly Majinga uh, was spat on and coughed on by a person with uh, COVID-19. She had uh, an underlying respiratory condition and she died. She infected, she was, she was, and and watching this, I was just sort of like, it was, it was uh, this weird moment where you kind of, kind of feel like you've sort of slipped into another, uh world but it in in reality it's just what horror can do it kind of lifts lifts that veil of pretense away um so yeah this is literally this is this is this is basically a documentary now rather than a horror movie <laughs> <laughs> I, I i think i think really interestingly this this poses a question is john like a uh mid-2000s horribly panned horror movie cassandra Speaking a truth that no one hears until it's far too late. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I didn't ask for the lathe of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, like, the switch that says only bad things has been taped down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is one more thing that I um, 
sort of wanted to pick up on and it's something that this film reminded me of quite a lot is the opening of uh, Marquez's One Dimensional Man which he wrote you know back in the 60s and he says a comfortable smooth reasonable democratic unfreedom prevails in advanced industrial civilizations a token of technical progress indeed what could be more rational than the suppression of individuality in the mechanization of socially necessary but painful performances <laughs> and it's like yep you know because this is this is what carol is explicitly told you know you don't need to do anything we'll do it all for you we have we have we have automated the process to utopia and all you have to do is go to sleep and all it's going to cost you mm-hmm. is something that you only ever have when you're awake yeah it's very much don't worry go back to brunch <laughs> yeah we would be at brunch right now if the parasitic fungus from outer space had won in 2016 <laughs> that's all i'm trying to say <laughs> although i suppose i wouldn't have said that with such emphasis <laughs> no we, we must I would be at dignified. brunch right now and it would be good um but this is but this is something that i wanted to pick up on because a lot of people because um, I, I really like your reading of this film, John, I, and I think it's it's bang on. But I think a lot of people, when you talk about fascism, have a very historical conception of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason, like reading it through something like uh, the New Left, Frankfurt School, Marcosa, is really helpful is because they identified, like 50 years ago, they identified these trends of um, just the ways in which fascism kind of doesn't just arrive fully formed you know as a as a kind of regime of terror but grows and is developed by the conditions that we already exist in yes ab- absolutely um you know what is the neoliberal project except to create a very smooth atomized techno- technocratic individual who would probably be okay with what is basically an incipient fascism as so long as the, the markets keep moving smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, oh, oh yeah, clearly. Like, I mean, like how many, how many articles do we have a day now calling for the United States to fully reopen the economy? Yeah. And you'll Shrug. get, and, and, and you'll there's get... no conceptualization of human death that, that, no. that's trapped to that. It's all being rationalized. And this is 100% how the gears of fascism are greased. A hundred percent. So this, this idea that, um, the idea it's very because the, the reason people have a historical conception of fascism is because it makes it easier to dismiss when uh people on the left like john who are always fated to point out that horrible things are about to happen <laughs> can, can be dismissed because people will go uh it's not the 1930s anymore what are you talking about but if you, if you go actually no fascism fascism emerges from the conditions that we live in now and the conditions in which we live now are actively encouraging uh deeply disturbing and and horrifying uh disregard for our fellow humans um you know wasn't there a quote in the wall street journal of a a stockbroker going yeah people are gonna die but you know that happens all the time so yeah why should we i'm like you're an ethical monster if you, <laughs> if you think that that's that's okay. Objectively, they are worse than the the fungus from outer space that seeks to duplicate everyone. You like these people just want you to die so that their magic line can go up for a while. Yeah, you die for the line which goes up. Yeah, 
We respect the line. The line must uphold. <laughs> Hold the line. <laughs> they don't. They don't. They don't even have the gall to make this like full, full-on absurdist too. Like, where, where, where's the hooded figures bowing before a line that magically goes up? That would at least make this a little interesting. Yeah, have some theater. Have fun with it. Yeah, right. if you're gonna, if you're gonna turn. If you're going to turn American capitalism into a death cult, at least get some fucking cool robes. Where's my psychodrama? Come on, guys. Watch more 80s <laughs> horror movies. Let's go. Look, if, <laughs> if you're going to perform a series of arcane rituals in order to uh, bring upon the end of the world, you should at least have a couple cool statues. Yeah, <laughs> it's not too much to ask. <laughs> and I think I think like so, so we're, we're 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 having a good time here, but I'm going to ruin it by being serious <laughs> and academic. <laughs> But I think I think we're talking about something interesting because we keep making jokes that like, like oh, at the very you know like Trump could be a mech, a you know, mech warlord, or like you know these 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 people, this death cult could be a real death cult. And at least that would be kind of interesting. But I think like one of the interesting things about 2007's invasion and our current kind of uh, situation, and something that I rant about on Twitter all the time, is aesthetics and liberal politics and fascism. Mm-hmm. And and one one thing that we we're seeing right now is that like people are like oh like well this 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 isn't fascism because like where's where's the jackbooted thugs where where are the people with german accents and their preoccupation with right angles and nordic symbology like like all of that stuff is absent but that's just aesthetics like that is just how things look and how things look is important but it is it is just the the surface it's the candy shell to the horrible inside and i think that like the whole the whole project of liberal politics is to make everything about aesthetics it's it's to strip everything of any kind of substantive discussion and any kind of meat and leave it as nothing but a hollow candy coating that that is fungible and interchangeable with every other hollow candy coating because they mean nothing mm-hmm. and we see this in invasion you know like the aesthetics of society keeps going like society is ostensibly fairly normal after everyone's been infected by this fungus there's just a lot of like suspicious groups of people that really want you to get a flu shot like that's that's the only like super major change right up until we reach the final climax and like some kind of like american military has resurfaced to come and save the day which is its own can of worms but i find it really interesting that like there's this huge discourse of aesthetics that that go on in this movie and it is all centered around this this slow and well lubricated slide into fascism oh yes of course i mean uh... Not to keep pointing out the modern day parallels, but the people screaming for everyone else to die so they can get a haircut just look like mall goers. They look like anyone else you'd see. They're not like parading around in mm-hmm. jack boots with giant flag. Well, some of them have giant flags. <laughs> see, that's the problem yeah, yeah. that some people actually are doing like the historical 30s aesthetic and it's like pivoting off. But yeah, it's like society doesn't look that much different post uh, fascist fungus invasion. And again, this is something this is something Mark Herzer talks about where if and you know they make the world better like you know there are peace treaties being signed there are ends to war there are no violence here anywhere in the world and so marcosa says in one dimensional man that in this is in a situation where you have um what appears to be a consistently rising standard of living any non-conformity with that system basically appears to be socially useless and will be rigidly policed all the same. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happens, right? You know, her resistance is sort of, 
it's actually uh, past a certain point in the film when she gets infected, it is practically useless because the only thing she can do now is to stay awake. Literally um, be eternally vigilant. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how do, how do we get out of this? How do, we, how do we solve the problem of the space fascist fungus? We have to rely once again on the US military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, otherwise it doesn't get released in the US. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's 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 kind of like an interesting uh, conundrum that I think the movie the movie I I, I don't think it, the the plot and the scripting handle it very well, but it is this interesting conundrum that what what is the thing that spreads the fungus across the globe? It's it's the American government, you know, like that is that is the power by which this thing spreads. What is the thing that ultimately defeats it? Is maybe the American government? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it's the it's it's the troops. It's our troops, our mm-hmm. beloved troops. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm reminded of you know 2016 when I started seeing this movie again, and just going, wow, there seem to be a lot, a lot of liberal voices asking for a coup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I was of the I think a coup is just going to happen, but I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> But there were a lot of people who were just going, uh, oh, no, you need to relax. He's got generals with him. Oh, the, yeah, it'll be generals, fine. Just generals stop paying attention. Go to go sleep. To, go to sleep. You know, hit hit, the, hit that delicious REM sleep you've been needing so much. And listen and to allow, my dulcet tones. Drift yeah, away. And allow the fungus to just spread <laughs> i mean for most people the fungus will be beneficial we'll only we'll, we'll take a haircut with some people but they were non-essential anyway exactly and yeah all right you know falling asleep for the first time might be a little bit traumatic but everything will be better once you get through it uh, so do you want to talk about the ending yes yes <laughs> been, I feel like I feel like we've been dancing around this. No, we've been we've been circling around the ending, and here's where I think is probably the Wachowski's biggest influence is at the end. You know, they all just say like, "Oh, well, the fungus just magically went away. The cure worked." Oh, and bye, it, <laughs> bye. Um, everything's cool now, and you can just forget. In fact, everyone has just forgotten that time period. They have no memories of it, so you shouldn't have any historical memory of it. And Nicole Kidman just shoots a look at the camera when she looks at Daniel Craig and then looks at the news that I interpreted to mean, "Oh no, my husband is a space fascist, and they've just managed to suppress it." Hmm. Yeah, you don't know. You don't know who it might be. I mean, historically, a lot of Nazis have then um, gone on to work for the Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Project Paperclip, Paperclip, <laughs> cough, cough, shrug. NASA, yeah. literally NASA, the thing that's venerated at the start of this film, like like the, the logo and the heroes that we see marching on was, 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 a, was like a Nazi rebranding project. Yeah, no, and I'm like... I- a German director who previously made a movie about the last days of Adolf Hitler definitely knows that. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the Wachowskis know it very well too. Because this is this is the this is the problem with this film, right? This is the the slight issue, which is that we know we don't know who because the solution to fascism is not the paranoia of the people around me could be fascists too. The solution is class consciousness and solidarity and coalition building uh of yes you could have been a fascist you if we if i left you alone 
if if I didn't recruit you as a... basically the solution is not to is not to isolate the solution are partisans. That's that's the solution to fascism. The the solution is resistance rather than like individuation. Yeah, because um, when she finds the other group of people who are uninfected, like their solidarity keeps them safe for a while, and it's only when she's yeah. isolated is she really at risk. Yeah, precisely. Um, and there has to be grounds for that solidarity. There have to be there has to be a a belief that such a solidarity is possible, even in the midst of a fascist space fungus that has slowly uh, colonized the brains of every single person that you know. There still has to be the the potential of coming across uh, coming across those who is, who are not yet infected and who can be use who are who, and who collectively can act together because that's the only way that you survive. That's the only way that you survive for a little for even even if it's only for a little while. Yeah, yeah, no, no, totally. Like the only thing that could ever stand up and resist to this is effectively collective action. You know, and like that's um. I, I, it's it's always kind of been interesting to me that in all the adaptations we've ever gotten of this film, um, inclu including the uh, MST3K, Mystery Science Theater 3000 uh, skit based on the text, thank you very much, out of all these adaptations, we never have the same ending that's in the book. No, no one has ever tried to translate that ending mm. where, where hu humanity just is able to actually band together and just be too too human effectively to take over there's something there's something inalienable about about like the inherent liberty and freedom that humans deserve and should have that cannot be conquered by a force like this you know there, there there's something there's something in that, that like these 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 kind of proto-fascist forces are damned to 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 be resisted that doesn't translate to the films. And it always bothers me that the films kind of end with either humanity being destroyed or the military saving everyone and not space pods just kind of lifting back up and going away. Well, I, I think some of that is just the sort of cynicism and hangover of the original adaptation where it was done that way because the director said he wanted the people in the audience to turn and look to the person they're neck with and wonder, are you a pod person? Like they were trying yeah. to inculcate like this paranoia, like just to have, have fun with it. And no one really deviates from that because I think they think it wouldn't be realistic, but you mentioned like humanity is just too weird or too absurd and too collective to really colonize. I immediately thought of that, like ice snitching phone call thing, like of the line you could call to like report oh, yeah. suspected mm -hmm. alien, illegal aliens. And it became useless for weeks because people were just calling up and saying, I saw an alien ship. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it got trolled into oblivion. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, it's like, well, yeah, why can't we do that ending where there's just like collective Dadaism and absurdity and the yeah. aliens just can't parse it because it's not logical. And I think, I think there's a, there's kind of like, not, not, not to wade too heavily into like the doomer discourse or whatever, but there, there is this impulse to be defeatist. There, there is this impulse to be like, we're, we're always losing and we're always trying to find how to lose a little bit less. When, when the kind of, I think the reality of it is much more nuanced and, and much more hopeful, you know, like we, we can win. And that's the, but like the part of me that's extremely cynical is like okay, like this movie came out of like the the multi million dollar Hollywood machine, uh, an mm. apparatus designed to uh, propagate a very specific set of propagandistic goals, 
of course it's not going to depict an ending where where people collectively band together for the betterment of humanity <laughs> yeah exactly I, I mean they want to suppress natural creativity and collectivism mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean like if, if i'm going to be ultra cynical like that that is one of the functions of hollywood if not if, if not like explicitly it, it is part of the implicit uh you know, I'm I'm just gonna keep I'm just gonna keep rambling until I slowly transform into Derrida and no one likes to talk to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's Derrida Pod people. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, accurate. <laughs> um no, you're right though. That's I don't that doesn't strike me as cynical. That just strikes me as fairly kind of uh sensible. Um and what's needed then is is for this is why this is why a left wing engagement with with culture, particularly mass culture, is important, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this is one of the reasons that we do the show because if if we don't kind of propagate this idea that you can examine texts in this amount of detail, we like what you end up. I mean, uh, not to get all kind of uh, Adorno and Horkheimer here, but like if you don't question these texts, they become part of your unquestioned assumptions about the ways in which culture and society operate and so critical engagement with them is not only uh fun hopefully but is also is also kind of important because it keeps us to use a metaphor from the film it keeps us awake it keeps us it keeps us critically engaged keeps us vigilant as uh john you point out in your article yeah and um in terms of like not critiquing texts or lines until they just become sort of dogma, I was thinking about how the standard trope for movies and stories about like authoritarian or secretive or exploitative institutions or governments was always, well, once people know the truth and once enough people know the truth, they'll just naturally rebel against it. You know, the very famously made fun of and sorry to bother you, in which no one actually cares mm -hmm. and borne yeah. out in reality, because, I mean, especially from 2001 onward, we know that the truth kind of doesn't affect the news because that's not what the news is there for. And it doesn't really affect people's things. So I was just wondering, what if the other side of that is true and effective, which is it's not the truth that gets people's minds to change. It's absurdity. It's narrative. It's story. Yeah. It's being fucking weird. You are 100% correct. Like, 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 just look at the function of the news media. Like, even, even liberal, ostensibly liberal American news media will endlessly hand ring everything to death. You know, like, they will never, ever, ever call anything the Republicans do bad. You know, like, 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 what was it like, like, uh, 17 years ago when Trump had someone or when Trump was like, ah, maybe you could just like inject bleach into your throat to cure COVID. And like, I think it was MSNBC, like, uh, or it was either them or NPR tweeted out a thing where it's like, like Trump says you can inject bleach. Our experts disagree. <laughs> Excuse like, me. Tut, 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 Mr. Trump. Right. Yeah, that would be like, a oh, bad idea. Don't don't listen to Trump. You know, listen listen to our experts. It's, it has nothing to. It's just oh, it's this horrible narrative and aesthetic garbage. And I, th I think you're completely right. It is about who has who's telling a more compelling story about what's going on, and who's mm -hmm. telling that story in a way that people will listen. Right? No nobody nobody is compelled to listen when when like Nancy Pelosi just go, goes onto the mic and it looks like she's melting and she starts talking <laughs> about how like if we if we increase a tax bracket we can have an app that makes cobra more accessible to families making 
no more than, than you know above 38 cents an hour some ludicrously obscure and overly bureaucratic thing i'm already falling asleep trying to make it this <laughs> and like like that's not that's not compelling that's not a story people want to hear well, and i think i think you're completely right like we need to we need to hook them where it counts and where it counts is imagination yeah, and in particularly like our political imagination or acceptable political imagination has been so bonsai treed and pruned back and starved, we might as well be fungal pod people when it comes to that mm-hmm. recall, because all we can do is the same thing over and over, which is somehow cut taxes. So yeah, I just forever, forever, taxes forever, they must always, always go down. It's the other line that goes down. Tax yeah. revenue. <laughs> um, ah, the great balance. <laughs> but I was just thinking about how, you know, like in 2014, like there were a lot of like jokey full communism now memes. And now the joke is that like, no, it's 2020. We're just full communism now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I was just wondering how like that actually translated from a series of like, uh, wouldn't this be absurd if I if I uh, yeah. believed in it into like an actual political philosophy held by the majority of people under 45? Mm-hmm. Yep. Isn't there that there's that there's that uh, joke which is like I joined Twitter six years ago to follow my to keep up with my favorite boy band and now I'm a communist. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, I'm a very good example of that. <laughs> it's like I turned myself into a macroeconomist so I could make I could make better jokes. Yeah, <laughs> but this is the thing, right? If it comes to imaginative capacity, um, the potential for a a radical break, something something new to emerge. We have had, what, 30 years of stultifying neoliberalism. We have had the end of the end of history. So, yeah, like, like screw that Duma shit. Like, we have, we have <laughs> taken some massive losses, right? That's, that's fine. But in times of great crisis, resistance has always arisen and always will do. And the only kind of uh, space in politics which has an imaginative grasp on what the future could potentially be in a sense that it's hopeful uh, and joyful and abundant for all people is on the left yeah like the, the whole the whole project is to build a new world from the ashes of the old and baby all we got is ashes right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. our new world just has to look better than their new world and their new world is wrecked Ratchet. Right, their their yep. world is an app that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best you get. That's that's the neoliberal utopia. It is it is God Emperor Elon Musk and the <laughs> Musk Empire app. That's all you would ever get. Ah, <laughs> uh, no dream big, dream a little bigger, baby. <laughs> <laughs> just just a little, please, for a start. <laughs> Maybe dream about an app that works if you're having trouble dreaming all the way to full communism. <laughs> but um, uh, so I think one other thing I want to I wanted to touch on uh, in regard to this film, and 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 the only reason this really comes to mind is because the the Wachowski sisters uh, did did some level of rewrites on the script. Is it's hard for me to not then analyze this this film through the lens of like queer cinema, right? And and there's always this kind of like. It's it's interesting to me that there's like this pervasive like are they one of us attitude when you're moving through the mm-hmm. film right is mm-hmm. is this person like me and and coming out with your identity is terrifying it's extremely difficult you know like you could face hostility you could face destruction 
like even literally in, in the course of American history you, and British history, especially, you can be injected with strange chemicals designed to fundamentally destroy parts yep. of your emotive landscape. Yeah, I mean, it, especially framed in that way, the like the entire train sequence from the station mm -hmm. to the subway is basically, can they tell? Do I pass? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, there's there's all those sequences where she's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, trying to pretend <laughs> to to be the, the classic invasion of the body snatchers thing, where you try to pretend to be like them, where you where you try to to ostensibly pass to avoid violence, and the whole time it's like wrapped with just this absolutely gelid terror because you know, like you you don't know the thing that's going to drop your guard. Right, like in 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 her mind must be running everything. Like, am I walking right? Am I talking right? Am I looking right? Do I do I feel normal? And then like like everyone around her is totally innocuous and thinking about other things, but her own mental landscape is devastated by this terror. And and like this is just solely because of the Wachowski sisters' involvement in this film. This is coming to my mind. <laughs> no, I think that's a really that's a really good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, totally. I actually I hadn't put the two and two together until you just said that, but. It's blindingly obvious in that context. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, makes it incredibly dangerous. You know, makes it explicit the danger in being clocked, right? In in mm -hmm. being in being seen in public, uh, and the, the the kind of violence that can erupt from that. It's a really good point. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that at all. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about like the various left wing. Um, messages in Wachowski's movies, uh, oh, yeah. even going as far back as Bound, even though that's not quite as, that's more of a screw cop, screw the patriarchy. Mm. But, you know, I was just saying <clears throat> Jupiter ascending is essentially, um, you people don't get our, our metaphor, so we're going to make them really blunt. Vampire capitalists from space. <laughs> <laughs> And Do we have to spell it out for you? No, that, that entire movie is like, I am going to take you from this. Okay, so the poor are literally turned into something consumable. And uh, <laughs> they they infamously don't give interviews, but around the time Jupiter Ascending was coming out, they gave like an interview to like this small leftist zine. And they said, yeah, we started writing it because we realized we hadn't written a romance. We wanted to do that. But it was also the time we started to reread Marx. <laughs> and oh, just, there we go. So like Marx plus Regency romance plus science fiction equals Jupiter ascending. I accept it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. These are a set of interests that are in no way specific to me. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that we wanted to bring up about this film? So some final thoughts to kind of wrap things up. Um, just that uh, I, I do think one of the reasons why this film wasn't well received and why it has a low rating is that it came off a series of like shaky cam, like jangly, mm -hmm. paranoid remakes of things yep. that like weren't necessarily good. And I think people were just tired of it. Yeah. And it, it's also like a legitimately uncomfortable movie to watch. Yes. Uh, I, I completely agree that that um, that opening shot where she's uh, Nicole Kidman's character is serving breakfast, and and the second I saw that, I'm like, oh god, this is that awful mid 2000s cinematography where everything is like handheld and really shaky and fast and blurry, and I'm just like, oh, she's serving breakfast. Why is this shot like a war scene? 
Yeah, but I think like it was able to claim that pervasive shake and into like, no, your domestic interactions are mm -hmm. incredibly fraught. Um, but I yep. also think yeah. like, you know, like every war movie, every like Iraq war movie that came out from 2001 to now has basically bombed because like they're just not interested in seeing it. We know it's there. We don't want to see it. <laughs> and this is this is another one of those like, hey, America, I think things are kind of screwed up. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're there, man. <laughs> we, we got it. Well, but but that's that that again kind of like reinscribes why the film is necessary, right? Because that's a very passive response where you go, yeah, things are terrible, but what are you? Mm -hmm. You still got to pay the bills. What are you gonna do? Well, that, that's why the importance of raising things like the question, why? Why do we have to pay the bills? Yes, exactly. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot in the context of. Uh, well, the Ameri the next American presidential election, where you go, ah, these are our choices. These oh are the choices. <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah, why? What? Hmm. Why? Excellent question. Let's let's pull on that thread just for a minute, shall we? <laughs> let's pull. Let's follow that thread all the way back to the Frankfurt School, where the answer has been sitting for like ten thousand years right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the last thing I want to say about this movie is that I, I found the kind of special effects makeup and and how the fungus spreads to be really interesting. You know, the, the fact that it creates this like false skin over you that you're always picking at, you know, and, and the real you is hidden underneath this kind of like decrepit, flaky outer coat. I, I found that to be really interesting, both in terms of, of again, like, you know, I, I saw that and I'm like, okay, like this feels like a Wachowski sisters thing, <laughs> but that's only because like, I, I kind of like have to read all of their movies through kind of like a queer cinema lens just because of who they are and what they did with the matrix which mm. is a phenomenal mm -hmm. uh, series of films. Correct. But, um, I also find it really interesting in our discourse of fascism, right? Because like, you know, like we, like that this is again, like the airplanes, the airplane and airport scenes are my favorite, but like we get that scene where, where Nicole Kidman's in, in an air, airplane bathroom and she's just picking off this kind of fungal skin that's over her. And she just, she just looks dead and tired and miserable. And like, if you think about the con the context here, like there's an alien life form creating a false secondary skin over her body. She's surrounded by, by this, this nightmare world. And, and she is so emotionally dead. And, and that really like, isn't that our current like emotive condition, right? Mm. Like the, the grinding of the gears of capitalism exists to make us emotionally deadened, to make us too tired to, to try and feel our way out of these situations, to build a new emotional bonds and in that sequence where she's just picking off this fungal skin just really kind of sells that for me. Uh, if, if I can add to this Ash's favorite Zizek quote. <laughs> to, to, yes, yes, to hug each other. That is, that's serious Leninist work. <laughs> Eas easily the best thing uh, Zizek has ever said. <laughs> Well, I'm always emphasizing social events within the political sphere because parties create parties. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What a, what a fun film. And so, like, I think your point about critics just, just being tired and not wanting to look at it is both true and a pretty damning indictment of mid-2000s cultural criticism in the United States. Oh, culture in the mid-2000s was just dead. 
<laughs> yeah, I was going to say thank you for dredging this, this movie back from like because we memory hold everything that happened between like 2004 to like maybe like 2011 and thank you <laughs> thank you for finding this movie and those like miasmic depths yeah no it was one of those like really it was like the early 90s in the United States like we just we just dropped the ball culturally nothing nothing was good <laughs> yeah uh but yeah thank you thank you for coming back on the show for for your second uh appearance where where can our listeners uh, find you find your work and support the things you care about right so i like everyone else am stuck inside well everyone who's not an essential <laughs> worker and therefore has to die for applebee's but <laughs> so like i'm on twitter a lot of course uh love it alone l-e-a-v-i-t-t alone also same word, leavitalone.com is all my writings and my artwork and, you know, me acting a fool on stage. And I usually link to mutual aid projects from my Twitter feed fairly often. So if you want to kick in a few bucks to the people who can't stay home, I'd recommend it. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much uh, to John. Thank you to all of you for listening. Um as always, we are still carrying on our weekly minisodes. Um, there are some watch parties coming up this week for patrons, so please do keep an eye out for those. And uh, we'll see you next time. Well, this was fun, and I think we've all deserved, we've all earned, uh, you know, some rest here. So I am going to fall asleep. Oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> Sleep tight. Pleasant dreams. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>